We'll turn in your Bible to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And this morning, as we continue through this psalm that is all about God's law, we will see that God's laws are righteous and eternal. And that leads the psalmist to delight in them, to love them, and to obey them. He sets a good model for us that we should follow. We're going to look at eight verses this morning. We're going to look at verses 137 to 144. And after we see what the psalmist has to say in these verses about God's law, we're going to continue looking at the principle that we looked at last time, that God's laws apply to all nations. And specifically, we're going to look at a particular law that really doesn't seem, at least to us today, that it's something that should be in force in our society today. But we're going to think about whether a law like this has application for us or not. Let's begin in Psalm 119, starting with verse 137. Follow along as I read. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Well, verse 137 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. God is, by nature, righteous in all that he is and does, and that means that his laws are perfectly righteous too. Have you ever been disappointed by a person that you thought was an upstanding, righteous individual, and then they do something wrong, something unrighteous, your friend's dad runs off with another woman. Your coworker is caught stealing from the company. You overhear a friend saying something hurtful about you. Those things happen because no person is perfect and righteous. We're all sinners. None of us can maintain righteousness for very long at all. When it comes to laws, that means then that man's laws even good men will sometimes make bad laws. Solomon starts off really well. He's asking God for wisdom. But then he becomes oppressive toward his people. He marries a whole bunch of women. Bring it up to modern times. Donald Trump seems to be doing so well. And then COVID comes along. And it's a train wreck of terrible and unjust decisions and policies. But God is perfectly righteous every time, all the time, without any exceptions. There will never come a day when you are disappointed by God's lack of integrity. And when it comes to God's laws, God's laws are perfectly righteous. Everyone, all the time, without exception. That's why God's laws are the perfect legal system, no matter what the circumstances. And that's why the psalmist can celebrate God's rules as righteous. God is by nature righteous in all that he is and does. And that means that all his laws are perfectly righteous too. Verse 138 says, You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. If the emphasis in the last verse, was on the righteousness of God's laws. The emphasis here is that God's laws come by his divine command or appointment. God's testimonies come by means of his divine command. Charles Spurgeon said, It's not left to our choice whether we will accept them or not. They are issued by royal command, and they are not to be questioned. So this is speaking to the authority that is behind God's laws. Kids, if you have a brother or sister that comes into the room and says, you have to get your pajamas on, what are you probably going to say? 
who says? Right? In other words, by whose authority are you telling me that I need to get my pajamas on? Is this you saying this or is this mom or dad saying this? And God's testimonies come to us with God's own authority behind them. And now, in addition to the psalmist telling us that God's laws are righteous, he tells us here that they are faithful. They are reliable. You can count on them. The word testimonies is a word for witness. It's, it's like sworn testimony offered in court. God's laws or testimonies are a reliable and true witness. And the reason that they're reliable and true is that they come from God who cannot lie. So they're a faithful testimony, laws that are always righteous and always true. Satan is the father of lies, but God is a God of truth, and you can count on what he has said. And God's testimonies come to us by means of his divine command or appointment. Then verse 139 says, my zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. So the psalmist's zeal to obey God sets him apart from his enemies. Who are his foes? Who are his enemies? Well, they are those who oppose God, and you see that in the fact that they don't obey God's laws. They forget them. And it's not like, I don't remember. It's forget as in ignore. Our loyalty to God should be higher than our loyalty to any man. And sometimes that means then that certain people who have set themselves in opposition to God are going to be counted as our enemies, our foes. Listen to what Psalm 139 says. This is verses 21 and 22. Just listen to this. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That's strong language. But if your loyalty is to God, then that's going to put certain people in a position of opposition to you because they oppose God. Now, reading between the lines here, we can see that the psalmist zealously obeys God's law. He's different from his enemies, his foes, in that way. And the specific practice toward God's laws that is in view here is remembering. We see the opposite in his foes, they forget. And so we can assume the psalmist remembers. And in the Bible, remembering is not just like, it's in my head. Remembering becomes visible when you act in regard to something. So, for example, when God remembered his people in Egypt, he did something about it. He acted to rescue them. So when we remember God's words, we are acting to obey them. So the psalmist's zeal to obey God's word is what sets him apart from his enemies. The next verse then, verse 140, says, Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. God's words have been tested and proven. They are worthy of our love. Promises in this verse is really just the word words. And well tried has the idea of like putting it in a fire like you would to melt down some metal and get rid of the impurities or to test it, you know, test the gold to make sure there's nothing wrong with it. In other words, when you put God's words to the test, they are shown to be pure. No impurities, no imperfections. If you're considering buying something online, if you're like me, one of the things you might do is read some of the reviews. How many stars does this thing get? What do people say about it? Are there people that say, hey, I bought this and it failed, it was faulty? If you could do that with God's word, and if you were to actually get honest, accurate reviews, God's word would have a flawless score. It never fails. It's perfect. It never falls short. And because of that, the psalmist says he loves God's words. What does that look like, to love God's words? Well, first of all, here's what it doesn't look like. It's not simply admitting or believing that it is the word of God, right? We, in our Sunday school class, we mentioned even the demons believe. They know that it's the word of God, but they don't accept it. Okay, so it's not just knowing or believing that it is the word of God, and it's not just agreeing in your head or approving of what God's word says, even about holiness. It's not just agreeing. 
it's not just a good feeling that you have when you read God's word. It's not like, oh yeah, I have this, you know, my affections are stirred up a little bit or something like that. No, loving God's words means that you consult it for all of life. It applies to your whole life. Everything is, is, is shaped and oriented by it. You read it, you hear it, you meditate on it, you let it show you what holiness actually looks like and you obey it. Loving God's word means not being willing to do anything that's contrary to it. Loving God's word means delighting to obey it. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, if loving Jesus is seen by obeying his commandments, then certainly loving his word is going to be seen by obeying his commandments. And God's words have been tested and proven. They are worthy of our love. Verse 141, then, the psalmist says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Regardless of our circumstances, we should faithfully obey God's laws. If God's laws were being obeyed by everyone, it would make it a whole lot easier for each of us to obey them. But when the vast majority of people are not obeying God's laws, it's a lot harder to have the integrity to actually follow God's laws yourself. The psalmist describes himself as despised. He's looked down on. You know, Jesus was despised. Scripture describes him that way. Some of the psalms that we have are what we call messianic psalms. That means it's a psalm about Jesus as the Messiah. Psalm 22 is one of those psalms, and it talks a lot about the suffering that the Messiah would go through. Here's what verse 6 says. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. You find the same idea in Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy about the Messiah. So it's about Jesus. And verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, that's Jesus. Jesus was despised. He was down on. He was in the minority. But did he use that as an excuse for why he didn't need to obey God's law? Well, no, he faithfully obeyed, despite the circumstances. And shouldn't we do the same? Matthew 10 tells us that a disciple is not above his master. We're not above Jesus. We shouldn't expect better treatment for some reason. We should expect that we may suffer in following Christ. But God's law is unchanged regardless of our situation. So, our love to his words, our faithful obedience, should be unchanged as well. Regardless of our circumstances, we should faithfully obey God's laws. Verse 142 says, Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. So here we see that God's law is the only perfect, unchanging standard of truth. Have you ever found yourself in trouble for breaking a rule or a law because you didn't know that the law or the rule had changed? That happens sometimes in sports. Over the years, the rules change and you find yourself, maybe I did, you, know, you haven't played volleyball or basketball for a while and then you realize, oh, apparently this rule has changed. Ohio has a new distracted driving law going into effect. Next month, it's going to change what you can and can't do on your phone while you drive, it can be confusing when the rules change. There will never be a time, though, when loving God and loving your neighbor is reversed or outdated. That's true for all time. God's rules don't change. And just like his laws are eternal, our duties to obey them are also eternal. Those things will never change. Now, man's laws change, right? We, we add new ones, we take others away, we change them, but God's laws are forever. Now, if you look around at different legal systems around the world, you'll find that there is some truth in each of them to varying degrees. 
in the legal systems that men come up with. And sometimes, you know, we can find broad agreement. For example, don't murder. Most legal codes have that in place. And yet, we can look at our own society and say, we make exceptions. You're allowed to murder people if they haven't been born yet. We're on our way to being able to murder people if they're getting old and inconvenient and a drain on society. See, we, we can have this idea that, well, we could all agree on the basics. It really doesn't work for creating a legal system. We're not ever going to have that kind of agreement. So our, our common moral sense, what the Bible refers to in Romans 1, you know, that we all know instinctively what we might call today natural law. It's good, but it's not enough to gain complete agreement on what is right and wrong. Thomas Manton observes that the truth contained in those various law systems are what he calls scraps and fragments of the truth. So that means then every idea, every law, every doctrine has to be tested against some absolute standard. A standard that's always true, that never changes. And that standard is God's law. So Paul tells the Galatians, he says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, let everything be tested against the standard of God's word. In Isaiah 8, which we're going to sing later this morning, when Isaiah warns the people not to listen to mediums and necromancers who claim to have the truth, he says to them, to the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, they have no light in them. God's law is the only perfect, unchanging standard of truth. Verse 143 says that trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Sometimes we have our eyes set on our present circumstances and all we can see is our difficulties. How often do you find yourself complaining about what's going on in your life? How often do you find yourself wishing that God would do things differently well, here, the psalmist says that he has trouble and anguish, but instead of complaining, he takes delight in God's laws. He knows that in the end, following God's laws is the way of blessing. He believes what God has said. Let me read for you Psalm 112, just the first three verses, and I want you to listen to what this says about the one who fears the Lord and believes what he has said, okay? Okay. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. In this life, though, we have a constant battle between the law of God, which we as believers want to obey, and the law that is still present in our flesh that pulls us in the opposite direction. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, he says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So what's the solution? How do we win this battle? Are we just doomed to failure? Paul goes on to say, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the answer. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty of the law that we deserved. So if you have faith in Jesus, then you're no longer under the law, under its condemnation, its penalty. Instead, free to live by the Spirit. And if we're following the Spirit, we'll obey the law of God out of gratitude for the deliverance that he's given us in Christ. God's people delight in God's laws. 
The last verse from Psalm 119 this morning, verse 144 says, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. God's testimonies are righteous forever. Peter calls scripture the living and abiding word of God. He says that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It abides. It remains forever. It's eternal. People change. Circumstances that we find ourselves in change, but God's word does not. Sometimes people doubt God's works. They can't understand why God would allow something into their life. But what we need to learn to do is to interpret God's providence in light of his promises, not interpreting his promises by his providence. Learn to see the circumstances around you in light of the promises, the eternal word that God given you that is unchanging if you want to learn to interpret your circumstances rightly and the psalmist here prays for understanding God's word is eternal and unchanging so it's a sure guide for helping us to trust him in changing circumstances Well, as I mentioned, the principle that we want to kind of think about again today is this idea that God's laws apply to all nations. And what that means then is that the civil magistrate, the state, is responsible to uphold God's laws. And the classic passage from Scripture, we've looked at it before, but it's good to see it again, comes to us in Romans 13. Let me just read you the first four verses of Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities... For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So as you look at those verses, we see that the civil magistrate is an authority that's instituted by God. He's a terror to bad conduct, but not to good conduct. He is God's servant for your good. He does not bear the sword in vain. And by the way, notice there that it's the civil magistrate that is given the sword. It is not the church. When we say that, our society should operate by God's laws and that the civil magistrate is responsible to see that God's laws are enacted. We are not saying that the church should rule the state. We're not saying that the church should run things. The church is not given the power of the sword. The state is. Those are separate spheres of authority. What we're saying is that, of course, the church is supposed to operate by God's laws, but the civil authority is too. He's the servant of God. He's an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So you can see, if he carries out God's wrath, he's representing God. He's acting on behalf of God. And as the passage goes on, you see that he's a minister of God. There's a, there's a common saying that we have that is really not helpful um, when we talk about law. And we say, you can't legislate morality. You can't make laws about morality. Well, guess what? Every law is religious. Every law is religious. That's what legislation is. It's not whether it will be religious, but which religion it will represent. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, I long for the day when the precepts of the Christian religion shall be the rule among all classes of men and all transactions. I often hear it said, do not bring religion into politics. This is precisely where it ought to be brought and set there in the face of all men as on a candlestick. I would have the cabinet and members of parliament do the work of the nation 
as before the Lord. Part of the problem in our thinking about this today is that we've bought into the myth of neutrality. We think, well, we can have natural law. You know, we all just kind of agree on what's right and wrong and we'll agree to live by those principles and it'll be like a neutral space. And, and, and every religion, you know, gets its own, you know, opportunity and space in there and we're not going to privilege one above another or anything like that. But that natural law, as we saw, is insufficient. It can't provide an, an alternative law structure. Rightly understood, all that natural law is, is a, a less specific confirmation of what God says in his word. In, in other words, natural law, if you're understanding it rightly, and God's laws are in perfect agreement. If they disagree, where's the problem? If they disagree, then we're not understanding natural law rightly. So natural law is insufficient. It's a good thing, but it's not a sufficient basis for a society's laws. Now, I want you to just kind of walk with me through a couple of historical examples. If we were to go back in, in our country's history, how did our forefathers think about God's laws in relation to the civic realm. Two examples for you. The first one is from the New Haven colony. Okay, so the New Haven colony laws say this. They humbly acknowledge that the supreme power of making laws and of repealing them belongs to God only and that by him this power is given to Jesus Christ. So they say God is the one who can make laws or, or repeal laws. He has the supreme power to do that. Goes on to say, and that laws for holiness and righteousness are already made and are given to us in the scriptures, which in moral matters or of moral equity may not be altered by human power or authority. You hear what they're saying? They're saying, God already gave us his laws. We don't need to make up laws to govern morality because God's already given them to us and we don't have the permission to change them. They go on to say this, civil rulers and courts are ministers of God, that's Romans 13, what we just read, for the good of the people and have power to declare, publish, and establish the laws he has made. Now think about that. If you declare something, you're saying something that's true. You're proclaiming it. To publish it is to make it known. To establish it is to solidify it. They're not saying that they're making up the laws. They're saying the laws already exist and the civil government simply declares it, publishes it, and establishes it because God's already given it to us. So the role of the civic leader is to take God's laws and declare, publish, and establish them. That's what that's saying the laws he has made, and in addition, to make and repeal, now hear the difference? Now here they're making laws and taking them away. To make and repeal orders for smaller matters not particularly determined in scripture, according to the more general rules of righteousness. Maybe a bad example, but something like Speed limits. That's what they're talking about. Okay, So there's, what they're saying is, God's already given us his law. We don't have the power to change that. All we're doing is publishing it, establishing it, making sure that we're living by it, and then adding any other smaller details that we need that are in agreement with the righteousness that God's laws have already established. Second example, this is the Massachusetts Code of 1648. Here's how it begins. So soon as God had set up political government among his people, Israel, he gave them a body of laws for judgment, both in civil and criminal cases. These were brief and fundamental principles, yet withal so full and comprehensive as out of them clear deductions were to be drawn to all particular cases in future times. That's talking about the case laws in scripture. 
And what they're saying is, look, God gave us a list of laws. They serve as examples. They're very brief, they're concise, but they're sufficient to serve as examples for us. And what we're supposed to do is we, we deduce from the law God gave, we make deductions, we apply it to the particular cases now in our day and in the future. That's what we call the general equity of the law. An example, God said, put a railing around your roof. Well, in the Massachusetts colony, did they put a railing around their roof? No, because that's a case law given to people who spent time living in space on their roof. But the principle is obvious when there's very obvious potential risk, you as the homeowner should mitigate that risk. Do something to make sure people don't hurt themselves. So they would take that law and they would apply it in their day and say, if you dug a well in your yard, you should put a lid on it. You should cover it. Now they're not gonna fine you if you don't, but if you don't cover it and someone falls in it, now you're liable. Why? Because they had a law about wells? No, because they had a law about railings on roofs. That's how it works. And they're just telling you, God's already given us the case laws, and the judges need to just make deductions from those things and apply them to the particular cases that we face today. Can you see how in those days, beginnings of our country, they assumed God's law? That was the starting place. Now, people would come up with objections and they would say, okay, that, you know, I understand, like, if you look at the Ten Commandments, one through ten, the back half of it, I can understand you doing that, right? Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery. You know, I can, I can be on board with that. But you can't legislate the first half. How would they respond to that? Well, Martin Luther taught that it's the duty of Christians to accept the Ten Commandments as divine law to be applied not only directly in their personal lives, but also indirectly through the laws of civil authorities derived from it in their political lives. Since the civil ruler represents God, he gets his authority from God, his law should respect and reflect God's law. He's not free to rule arbitrarily. So think about those Ten Commandments. How are they structured? Well, we, we know the first half teaches you how to love God, and the second half teaches you how to love your neighbor. Now, John Calvin taught, he said, the civil magistrate's duty extends to both tables of the law. So the first half and the second half. Calvin says the civil magistrate should enforce the whole of the Ten Commandments. He says... Even the pagans have confessed that no polity can be successfully established unless piety be its first care, and that those laws are absurd which disregard the rights of God and only for men. If you don't have God in mind in what you're doing with laws, Calvin says, even pagan societies recognize that, the, that who you worship is your source of law, and you have to take that into account. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, there's a, there's a difference between internal and external. Think about this with me for a minute, okay? So think about the, the second half of the Ten Commandments. We have commands like, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness. But what's the last one? Number 10, don't covet. How do you enforce that? Well, how does the Bible enforce it? It doesn't. There's no penalty for coveting. What is there a penalty for? There's a penalty for when coveting turns into the other ones. When coveting turns into adultery, when coveting turns into stealing, when coveting turns into false witness, when coveting turns into murder, then there's penalties because those things are external. The Bible doesn't punish the internal sins in terms of the civic ruler. God sees the heart, God will deal with it, but God never asks the civic ruler to read your heart and punish you for your thoughts, okay? Doesn't do that. 
But now carry that idea over to the first half. Have no other gods before me. No idols, no blaspheming. Remember the Sabbath day and honor father and mother. Here, it's the first one that is the internal. No other gods. If you had another god in your mind and in your heart in Israel, what was the penalty for that? There is no penalty for that. That's internal. The civil magistrate can't do anything about that. But when that sin becomes external, when it works itself out by worshiping an idol, blaspheming the name of the Lord, violating the Sabbath, or disobeying the rulers that God has put in place, father and mother, now it's external and there's penalties for those things. So there's always the internal, external distinction going on. See, a lot of people want to say, okay, but the, the civil government can't make people believe. Nobody's saying they should. Biblical law wasn't telling you that the civil government was going to make people believe. It always had this distinction. Now, I want to read you a quote, and I'll warn you, this is a long quote. This is Heinrich Bullinger. He succeeded Ulrich Zwingli. He's one of the, you know, really important reformers, and he thought a lot about this stuff. I want you to hear the logic of what he says. So you're at the point where, okay, we've been in the message for a while. If you need to wiggle a little bit, stretch, go ahead, get the blood flowing, get your mind ready. I want you to follow along with what he's saying here. All right, here we go. All right, Bollinger says this. He says, I grant and confess that faith is God's gift in the heart of man, which God alone searches and knows. But men are judged by their words and deeds. I admit, therefore, that the erroneous opinion of the mind may not be punished. However, wicked and infectious professions and doctrine must in no way be tolerated. Truly, no man does in this world punish profane and wicked thoughts of the mind. But if those thoughts break forth into blasphemous words, then are those blaspheming tongues to be punished by good princes. And yet, in saying this, I do not say that godliness is able to be given or bestowed by the magistrate. Justice is the gift of God, which no one but God gives to men. But who would be so foolish to conclude then that unjust men, robbers, and murderers are not to be punished because the magistrate, by punishment, cannot bestow righteousness on an unrighteous people. He says, that doesn't make any sense. We must, therefore, make a distinction between faith itself, which is the gift of God in the heart of man, and the outward profession of faith spoken and declared before the face of men. For while false faith lurks in and lies hidden within the heart and infects no one but the unbeliever himself, to that extent, the unbeliever cannot be punished. Okay, just because you have wrong beliefs, the civil government can't punish you for thinking the wrong thing, believing the wrong thing. But if this false and forged faith that lay hidden should break forth to blaspheme, to the open attacking of God and the infecting of his neighbors, then that blasphemer must be stopped and prevented from doing further damage. To fail to suppress such a fellow as this is to put a sword in a madman's hand to kill unwise and weak men. I hope you can see that distinction between internal and external and how they argued about what the civil magistrate should or should not try to enforce or govern. When you think about the first table of the law and the second table of the law, we can't just look at the second because loving God is the foundation of loving your neighbor. They're inseparably related. Now we've talked about the case laws 
We got the example from the Massachusetts colony of how those case laws function. They're representative situations. The magistrate reasons from them to conclusions for today's situations. But when he does that, the magistrate is not free to compromise the Ten Commandments. He doesn't get to say, well, we'll take these seven, but those three we're going to leave aside. He doesn't get to do that. But the case laws do provide flexibility in the application of the principles that are in the Ten Commandments. Now, another objection that comes when we talk about this idea of how God's laws apply to all nations is this. God's laws seem really harsh. Or if it's coming a little bit more of an attacking version, you'll get someone that says, you just want to execute homosexuals. Right? That's, that's kind of the go-to accusation. What is the biblical version of punishment? We've talked about it before. It's lex talionis, just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the idea behind that is the punishment needs to fit the crime. That's why we see the biblical examples of restitution and things like that. Here's an example. In Wadsworth, if you leave your car on the street between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., you can get a ticket. And it's a $5 fine, and it doesn't go on your record. Now, what if we said, that seems like a good penalty, so we're going to apply that across the board even to things like murder. You murder someone, you pay a $5 penalty, and it doesn't go on your record. Would there be a problem with that? Well, of course there'd be a problem with that because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And, and that's what God's system of punishment is saying. The punishment should fit the crime. And what that means, follow the reasoning here. God's penalties given in his word tell us something about how God views those crimes. So when we say, I don't know, that penalty that God gave there seems really harsh. Is the problem that God is too harsh? Or is the problem that we're not thinking rightly about how serious that sin is? See, God's penalties should indicate to us how serious something is. So there's a list of things in Scripture that are capital punishments, capital crimes. Those are the things that God takes really, really seriously. And for us to go, well, that's not a big deal. That's a problem with us. That's not a problem with God's law. What the, and this principle also means then you can look at your own society and when you see your laws changing, that's a symptom of the values changing in your society. So, for example, we changed what could legitimately lead to a divorce and we now have no-fault divorce. That's a symptom of changing values in your society. We've removed all of the blasphemy laws, except for there's six states that still have blasphemy laws on the books. Well, that's a symptom of changing values in the society. When it comes to the penalties that God has given in Scripture, the severity of the penalty reveals the seriousness of the offense. So the crimes that are capital crimes... Those are the top of the list. Those are things that we should go, man, why does God take that so seriously? And why do I not? Like, where's my thinking off here? We also need to remember that the penalties given in Scripture are maximum penalties, typically, with the exception of murder. God doesn't give the option, when, the, when it's a, a case of murder, of a lesser penalty. But all, for all the rest... There's the possibility at the judge's discretion of something like a ransom, a fine that would be appropriate, okay? The punishment needs to fit the crime, but there's substitutions even for those capital crimes with the exception of murder. Now, I want to give you an, another example from history. Oliver Cromwell, uh, when he became the Lord Protector in England following the, the civil wars there and all of that, one of the things that he did was he instituted the death penalty for adultery. Now, I'm not discussing necessarily if that's the appropriate penalty, but it's interesting to see what happened. Historically, the rate of illegitimate births hovers around 4 to 
And by the way, that should tell you something about our society today, because we're nowhere near four to five percent. We're way above that. But during Cromwell's years, it dropped to 0.5%. That's the lowest of any decade during the 500 years that they had kept track in England. When they instituted the death penalty, there was no increase in enforcement. They didn't need to. Why? Well, there is the, the, the idea that it was a deterrent. That's true. But the real reason is there was enough of a revival spiritually going on in the nation that people wanted just laws. They desired that law because they wanted a society where adultery was unthinkable. They wanted it from their heart. That's why the law worked. The law wouldn't work if it was just being imposed on a people who didn't want it. But the revival came first, then the reform. Cromwell propagated the gospel greatly, and that was one of the results. I'm not going to take a lot of time on the case law today, but I want you to see it. So turn with me to Leviticus 24, verses 10 through 16. Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. This, like I said, this is one of those laws that is so foreign to our idea today, but it's a capital crime in God's system. And so that disconnect tells us, hey, something's off. And it's not God's law that's off. It's our thinking. So we need to think about this again. Okay, Deuteronomy, excuse me, Leviticus 24, 10 to 16. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name, that means the name of Yahweh, and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. Now, let me just clarify, this is talking about blasphemy, not just about um, like the exclamation of taking God's name in vain. This is blasphemy with a particular, it's got a particular intent. It's an active cursing of God. That's what's going on here. So blasphemy is disrespect toward God. The word means to curse or revile, to puncture or to pierce. In other words, it's seeking to destroy. God's name represents his character, so attacking his name is essentially character assassination. It's a public reviling of God. That's what's going on here. Now, Jesus was accused of blaspheming because he claimed to be the son of God. And his claim then attacked and undermined the power structure of the day. That's why they viewed it as such a threat. Now, it's true in scripture, blasphemy can even include cursing or reviling the rulers that God has put in place. And it's, again, it's not just criticizing, it's with this intent to destroy. The key thing is to understand the reason why this is such a big deal. If God is the God of the society, and all the laws and order are grounded on him, then an attack on him is an attack on the entire order of the society. So attacking the rulers that God has put in place is part of the picture of blasphemy because 
undermining God's representatives is an attack on God himself. You can see that in the story that we just read. Blasphemy is a capital offense in the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that every instance resulted in an execution, right? The judge has discretion. But it does tell us how seriously God views it. Because it's opposing the very order of things as God has created them. It undermines a society. It has a public effect. And so God deals with it severely. Now, think with me about some implications or how to apply this today. It's easy to think that, well, we have in our society freedom of speech. And that means we shouldn't have any blasphemy laws. Because we want a neutral society where no one religion is privileged above another. And what we fail to realize is there is no neutrality. Every law is religious in nature because as soon as you say should or should not, you're saying that something is right and something is wrong. You're making a moral judgment. Every law is religious in nature. And again, it's not whether, but which. It's not whether there's going to be a religious basis, but which religious basis will the laws come from. Not whether we'll have blasphemy laws, but which blasphemy laws will be enacted. And when I say that, you might think, but we don't have blasphemy laws in effect today. Are there certain things that if you say them, the regime in power today will punish you? Let me suggest a few. A week or two ago, Kim Davis, the Kentucky County clerk who refused to certify a so-called gay marriage, was fined $100,000 in damages to be paid to the men. Why? Because she spoke and acted against the official religion of the regime sexual perversion may not be questioned. Another example. In May of this year, Anthony Bass, baseball player with the Toronto Blue Jays, was pressured to publicly retract and apologize for a post that he made on social media. The post had called for people to boycott Target and Bud Light for their promotion of the LGBTQIA pride campaigns. And Bass caved in and apologized to his team management and his teammates and the public. What was it that he did? He criticized one of the gods of our age. For the past three years, if you post on Twitter or YouTube anything about COVID alternative treatments or anything critical of the so-called vaccines, you can be punished, demonetized, banned from the platform. Why? for questioning and blaspheming the rulers and the policies that they've imposed. If you were to speak out in support of the January 6th protesters, I'm not talking about the ones who committed crimes, just those who were there and spoke publicly, you can be punished. They can be thrown in prison, not for real crimes committed, but things that the regime can use to convince a court to go along with their intimidation. Why? Because blasphemy is regime in power, questioning the legitimacy of their rule. Last example, a local one. A teacher here locally in Massillon was forced to resign last year from Jackson Memorial Middle School because she refused to participate in the social transition of students who claimed to be a different gender than their biological reality. She was told that, quote, she would be required to put her beliefs aside as a public servant. You hear the claim? The claim is that this space is neutral. Is that neutral? That's not neutral. That's a religion. That's a religious claim. Within two hours of her expressing her reservations to the administration, she was ejected from the school. Why? Her Christian beliefs fell outside the orthodoxy of the regime. Her actions were blasphemy against the religion of personal autonomy and self-determination. It's not whether, but which. We have blasphemy laws because the nature of the regime and the laws is religious, inescapably. And the laws and the penalties that our society has embraced speaks volumes about the nature of our beliefs and values. 
So then, should we have Christian-based blasphemy laws? Should we have capital punishment for blasphemy against the Christian God? Take a step back and ask the question, how do we know if a particular law from the Old Testament carries over today or not? Think of it as a question of principles and practices. When the, out, when the Old Testament outlaws a particular thing, you've got to ask, is the thing itself related to the principle that's being taught? So, for example, last Sunday we considered the law against homosexuality. That's against God's law in the Old Testament. Is the practice there tied to the principle? Yes, it is. So that prohibition would still be in effect today. But what about dietary laws? Things like don't eat pork, don't eat shellfish. There's nothing inherently wrong with pork or shellfish. The principle was the separation of God's people from the nations being distinct. Does that principle carry over today? Yes, it does. We are to be distinct and holy. Does our holiness consist in not eating pork? No, the practice wasn't tied to the principle. So the particular prohibition doesn't carry over, but the principle does. How about sacrifices? God mandated sacrifices in the Old Testament. Is the principle tied to the practice? Well, in a way, yes. But here the thing is that the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus has come. His sacrifice is once for all. And it still stands today for us. So do we make a sacrifice? It's made for us in Christ. So that principle continues. The practice is changed in that it's no longer animal sacrifice. It's Christ who has been sacrificed for us. What about murder? That was wrong. That was a, a, a law in the Old Testament. Is the principle tied to the practice? Yes, it is. It's the destruction of someone that's in the image of God. That carries over today. That's inherently wrong. You get the idea. So what about blasphemy? Is it inherently wrong? It has never been okay to blaspheme God, and it never will be. So that law carries over to today. So should it be a law in our society that the civil magistrate enforces? Here's where we need to have some practical considerations of the reality of where we're at. Like the example of Oliver Cromwell and the adultery laws, Old Testament civil law cannot be imposed on an unwilling society. Another way of saying that is you can't have legal reform without religious reform. But what if we had enough Christians in places of power that we could ram through a blasphemy law? Wouldn't do any good. In fact, it would do harm because coercion actually tends to produce greater evils. So why are we even bringing it up? We're talking about long-term strategy here. We're not talking about imposing God's law on a society that doesn't want it. We're talking about asking God to give us a society that wants it so that we can live that way. We're not talking about coercing people into obeying God's law. Instead, we're laying out the long-term goal. Where are we headed? What are we aiming for? We're aiming for a society that has a desire to please God in every area of life. And when that happens, then we'll have blasphemy laws and they'll be appropriate. So what do we do today? Let me give you three things. If we understand the teaching role of the penalties in God's law, then learning more about God's laws and his penalties will help us to better understand the mind of God. Why does God give such a seemingly harsh penalty for this sin? If the penalty seems too harsh, that should probably be a signal to you that your thinking is off. If God thinks this thing is really important, I should probably learn why. Second, 
kind of application here. Just because our society isn't ready to adopt God's laws doesn't mean that we, the church, shouldn't live by them to whatever extent is possible. So in our homes, in our businesses, in our relationships, we should live the way that God has instructed us to live. And third, we should be aiming for generational faithfulness. Parents, grandparents seeking to have their children learn how to live according to God's law. Because the more people who learn to live this way, the more people who can say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law, the closer our society will be to embracing God's laws the way we should. Let me finish by pointing us to Jesus. Obeying God's law will never gain salvation for you. We are all lawbreakers and we all rightly deserve the penalty of the law, which is death. But Jesus has taken the penalty of the law on himself. He's paid that penalty for us and that brings us freedom. But we don't use our freedom as a means to gratify our sinful desires. Instead, we use our freedom to please him. How do we do that? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so we want to be those who obey God's law, not because it earns us salvation, but it's a means of saying thank you to our Savior. And it's the way that he's designed for us to become like him. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts so that we think and, and, and understand sin the way that you do. I pray that we would learn your value system. I pray that the kids who are here would grow up in faithfulness to you and that we would see a growth in our society of people who want to please you. People who delight in your law. Teach us to love your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.